One of the great granddaddies of all modern conspiracy theories is the JFK assassination, which took place on November 22nd, 1963. Uh, I rather joke and say it's a gateway drug into the conspiracy mindset and conspiracy thinking. Lots of different theories out there. Lots of different people will have lots of different specific, sometimes really detailed ones as to why they think their theory is the right one. And then there are those out there who think, no, it was just Oswald, the lone gunman. Today, I'm going to talk about all of this with Mr. Fred Litwin, author of three books, the most recent of which is On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. Hello, Mr. Litwin. How are you today? Great. How are you? Great to be here. Thank you for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you everybody out there for listening. Don't forget you can see images on our YouTube channel and subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel like it, you can donate via our Buy Me A Coffee page. Links in the episode notes. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Okay, Mr. Litwin, so this is your third book. You wrote a book before this about how you, you're kind of a reformed JFK conspiracy guy in many ways. Uh, you, your second book, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, <laughs> kind of says it all. You were, you were into the JFK conspiracy as a, a young man. How did that happen? Why? Well, I was sitting at home. It was a Thursday night in March 1975, and Geraldo Rivera was on late night uh, with his Good Night America show, and he showed the Zapruder film for the first time ever on national television. And so I was sitting at home watching that, and it just blew me away. I mean, to see the, the headshot and the, his Kennedy's head go back and to the left, it very much impressed me that this is something I really had to look into and find out what's going on here. And that was the, uh, the impetus for me to go to the library and the first book I got out was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. And then I was hooked. And that started me on a quest to find out, well, what really happened that day? Right, yeah. I think a lot of people saw that and then heard the official uh, report from the Warren Commission and kind of went, huh, I'm not seeing these two things match up. And so, therefore, something is amiss. How long did you, because now you've changed your mind. Now you're a lone gunman guy. When did you switch? What was the cause of that? You know, several times in my life, I sort of gave up the JFK assassination. I went to uh, do my MBA in, in Kingston, Ontario in 78, and I sort of said, I don't have time for this anymore. So I pushed it all aside. In 1983, I took a year off to go traveling, and I actually 
gave away all my GFK books. I even threw away my correspondence with people with like Dr. Sirowak, tossed it out. I thought that was the end of it. I got pulled back into it in 1991 when I was living in England, and I picked up a book in Holland by Harrison Livingston, one of his books on the JFK assassination, and I found out uh, there was a, a magazine called uh, the, For the Third Decade, and I subscribed, and I eventually found a, a group in England of people who were interested in the, the assassination, and I started going to their meetings, and uh, I was starting to change. I felt like you know some of the conspiracy folks were just, there was too much conspiracy stuff. In, in what they were talking about. And I started to push back a bit. And where I really changed was for the first time, it was it was sold on CD-ROM. It was the House Select Committee on Assassinations. There are 10 volumes of evidence in the JFK assassination. I had not read that. And I really wanted to get it. And it was on CD-ROM and I bought it. And that really blew me away, those 10 volumes of evidence. Because the House Select Committee on Assassinations did all these scientific tests ballistic, acoustic, you name it. And they all, with the exception of one test, all supported a lone gunman. Mm. And so you thought, hey, wait a second. Have I been barking up the wrong tree for a long time here? Yeah, and I was also really influenced by Paul Hoke, who was a researcher who lived in California, and his newsletter, Echoes of Conspiracy. Somebody gave me a bunch of these Echoes of Conspiracy. And there were a few things in there that really made sense in explaining what had gone on. And that influenced me as well. Uh, just after the event, late 63, 64, 65, uh, somewhere around 50, 51% of the U.S. populace thought, no, it wasn't just this Oswald guy. And then that number started rising, reaching a high in 1975, the year that you got interested, where 81% of the U.S. population said, no, we don't buy the Warren Commission report. And then it bounced around for a while, jumped back up in the year 2000, 81%, and then has been kind of steadily declining ever since. And today, uh, we're down around 60% of Americans, which is the lowest number since it happened. But still, 60%, that's a lot of people. Why do you think that is? That's a lot of people for sure. Yeah, that's a lot of people. It's a six out of 10. That means that any large family gathering, there are you know more people than not that are going, Oswald didn't do it which then opens up this sort of Pandora's box of, okay, well, who did? And that's when the fistfights start. It was the mob. No, it was the Cubans. No, it was Cuban exiles. No, it was the Soviets. No, it was the CIA who doesn't operate within the U.S. Then it must have been the FBI. It was the Dallas police force. It was union organizers. It was, I don't know, uh, I actually came across a great one that said, in fact, it was aliens. Right. That, that he was shot. he was shot by his driver, using an alien-crafted gas-propelled gun. So Kennedy kind of fits into whatever you wanted to, really. I think Don DeLillo, in his novel Libra, which is about the JFK assassination and studying conspiracy theories, calls it the, the great American myth of the 20th century. Yeah, I think you know it gives people the ability to, to see whatever they want to see in the assassination. So if you really want to be a critique of American foreign policy, you could say that Kennedy was killed because um, he wanted to follow a different foreign policy. If you don't like the CIA or whatever it is, you could you could find a reason in the JFK assassination. But one of the reasons we're still at 60% is it took a long time for there to be some really good books out there that supported the lone gunman theory. Uh, when I first started researching this, um, you had Rush to Judgment and you had Harold Weisberg and you had only had conspiracy books. 
that's all I could read. Well, right now, though, it's changed. And there's a lot of good non-conspiracy books. And I think because of Facebook and the internet, there's a forum where people can actually push back on some of the conspiracy theories. And while you won't change a lot of people's minds, it's the people in the middle, the people who don't really have a firm opinion, who for the first time when they start out can actually be exposed to non-conspiracy thinking. And that, I think, has a big effect. Let's kind of look at some of the classic proofs for those that say a conspiracy was involved. Either Oswald didn't act alone or he didn't even fire at all and he is purely a patsy and others uh, took the shots. So one of the ones, of course, is that, well, you know, the parade route was changed at the last minute so that it would go past the book depository, which is where Oswald, the patsy, was situated. Well, I always find it funny that the people who claim that also say the, the fatal shot came from the grassy knoll. Okay, fine. No, the, the truth is that it wasn't changed. The Dallas Times-Herald had a map of the uh, the parade route that showed the turn onto Elm. The Dallas Morning News, while its map did not have the turn, the actual description of the parade route had the turn. And so it wasn't changed. And in fact, here's the choice that the people who designed the parade had. They had a choice. You can either turn on Helm and take the Stemmons Freeway to the trademark and show off your brand new expressway. Or you can keep on Main and make a right hand turn on Industrial and go through a rather seedy part of town to get to the trademark. So it was a pretty easy decision. Let's show off our brand new freeway. Even people like Sylvia Marr, in fact, she was quite critical of Jim Garrison for claiming the parade route had changed. Um, it didn't. I think the most obvious refutation of that is if it was changed at the last minute, then what the heck were all those people doing there in Dealey Plaza? Yep. Right? Yeah. Why were they all there? Was that just, was there a picnic going on and he just happened to drive by? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you can actually see there are actually, like you said, there's a, there was actually a map, I think three or four days in advance printed in the newspaper. And That's right. That one's clearly just not true. Yep. What about that bullet? The magic bullet. CE399 or FBI exhibit C1, the magic bullet, the bullet that took all those terms. And during the court case, Garrison made a big point of saying that it defies physics and it spins through the air and takes a right turn in the middle of the air and does all this crazy stuff. And then shows up on the hospital gurney completely intact. You know, that was my big critique of the Warren report when I first got into this was I didn't buy the single bullet theory. And in fact, when I looked at the House Select Committee on Assassinations volumes, I was actually blown away when I saw their trajectory diagram um, that was done by NASA and how everything seemed to align perfectly with the shot from the sixth floor window. In all the planes, it just Connolly and Kennedy were lined up and I, I was really shocked by that. The fact is that the bullet is not pristine. It's actually flattened on one side. And after the bullet exited from Kennedy's neck, it started tumbling and actually sort of went through the wrist almost backwards. And that's why um, the only damage is the, well, the bullet lost weight from a, a lead that was extruded from the core, which is why the only fragments in Connolly's wrists were lead um, and not copper. It's completely consistent with what you would expect from that kind of damage. I don't know if you saw the recreation on Discovery uh, TV channel, but they did a recreation of the single bullet theory and it came out almost exactly um, the same. We who don't use firearms, we think we know how bullets behave because we see them in movies and TV. But of course, that's all staged and those are not necessarily professionals. Bullets actually do weird things. 
They spin around. They they spin through a human body. You can get shot in the left shoulder and it comes out your right thigh. Like there's all sorts of weird stuff that can happen. Yeah, and also I think it was it was a copper jacketed bullet, a military style bullet. And when you look at some of the forensic pathologists like Dr. Cyril Wecht, who objected to the single bullet theory, well, his ex- expertise was in civilian autopsies, not in autopsies with with the use of such kind of military ammunition. Uh, for me, it was always, but then it shows up pristine on the gurney. You know, I thought that that was the case for many years. And I thought, well, if that's true, then someone planted that clearly because that's not the bullet that went even if it did all these crazy things that's clearly not the bullet that went through a whole bunch of human tissue and and muscle and bone and things so that means already they knew that there was a cover-up that was necessary however i just saw a picture today from the national archives of that bullet and it is all misshapen yep I, I also find it astounding if you believe that bullet was planted, how would the conspirators know that there wouldn't be too much evidence? How would they know there wouldn't be other fragments of the bullet found and all of a sudden you're left with one extra bullet? How do you explain it? Like all the pieces of the true cross, you know, is <laughs> like, well, that was an awfully big cross. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense, this whole idea of planting it. Though, of course, I think that this goes into the conspiracy mindset a lot, which is that first off, there's this outrageously complicated, insidious, and and ultimately very morally bankrupt, if not outright evil, plot. And yet, the conspirators are also big dum-dum heads. And they make stupid mistakes, which I, in the modern age with my web browser, have been able to see through. Because even though they're super clever, they're also super stupid. Yeah, that's that's so true. And, and I think that, that part of the problem is that some people have this romantic image of the CIA as this super agency, which can do almost anything, cover up almost anything. And in fact, over the years, the CIA has been like many other organizations, somewhat inept. Um, if you ever read the Pike Report, the CIA missed uh, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. They had no idea that was going to happen. There's been no shortage of CIA mistakes mistakes and issues and problems over the years. They're just human beings like anybody else. I'm thinking most recently of the, uh, you know, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was kind of a big bone-headed move. Yep, they got that wrong. <laughs> the, the common view of the CIA is just not true. I think back to a line that's attributed to Deep Throat talking to Woodward in the, uh, in the garage. He says, the truth is, these just aren't very bright guys. <laughs> yep, that's very true. All right, let's talk about that rifle. The rifle itself, you there was testimony, I believe, for the Warren Commission that the scope was, first off, misaligned, and that second off, it was mounted for a right-handed person, but Oswald was left-handed. Hmm. Again, that's another one of those, boy, that was stupid, if that's true. Yeah, I, I don't. We don't know exactly what shape the scope was in when Oswald used it. He, when he was uh, trying to leave, he put or maybe he dropped the the weapon through those boxes. So we don't know how the scope was when he actually used it. He actually, of course, may not have used the scope. Um, he may have used the iron sights. He may have used the scope for the first shot, missed, and said, uh, "Fuck that! I'll just use the iron sights." There was some talk from some guy who I can't remember who it was, some military guy who said that the specific rifle itself was for him the proof that something was amiss because this rifle, uh, I guess in military circles, it was often known as the humanitarian rifle. The joke was it couldn't hurt somebody if it wanted to. Like it's not a particularly good weapon for shooting people with basically. And yet somehow this guy who was kind of a schlub 
manages to get off some truly outstanding shooting, if I may say, with this kind of crappy weapon and managed to get two or three hits, including a headshot. Well, Oswald didn't have that much money, and so he bought what he could. He bought the Mandlinger Karkano rifle. Um, Look, it's pretty clear these days that he didn't have 5.6 seconds. He may have had 9 to 11 seconds to take his three shots. Of the three shots, one missed, two hit. It wasn't great shooting. And also, in in the Marines, Oswald was a sharpshooter. He wasn't a bad shot. I mean, that's just a myth that conspiracy people have propagated over the years, but he was a pretty good shot. And it wasn't a hard shot to begin with. You're talking about 60 to 85 yards away. It's not impossible. So let's talk about the Zapruder film. Weirdly, this is the most documented assassination in human history. Plenty of times assassinations have uh, set the ball rolling on a number of things. I'm thinking, of course, back to World War I and how that all started. But this thing had photographs, uh, audio recordings, films, not just Zapruder. There were other people who had uh, film footage as well. It is this bizarrely well-documented event. But the Zapruder film is the gold standard. Like you said, you saw it and you went, hmm, his head goes back and to the left. How is that possible? I think what I I find most comical about the Zapruder film and and conspiracy theorists is that when I first got into it, the Zapruder film was proof that there was a conspiracy, both in the headshot and in the so-called lag between the reaction of Kennedy and the reaction of Connolly. So there was the proof. Now that we've gotten better at analyzing the Zapruder film, we've noticed that in fact, from frame 312 to frame 313, Kennedy's head goes forward by about two inches, proof that he was shot from behind. And we've also noticed Connolly's lapel flap at frame 224, 225, indicating that they were shot at the same time. And so now the conspiracy theorists say, well, the Zapruder film has been altered. Because it doesn't show conspiracy, it had to have been altered. I mean, it's just it's just laughable. Well, you know, I mean, I think I think a lot of this comes from uh, the guy who was uh, the National Photographic Interpretation Center uh, official, Dino Brugioni, I guess is how you pronounce it, who was considered to be one of the the best intelligence analysts for photographs uh, anywhere in the world. He swore that he had seen because everybody talks about this frame three thirteen. Frame three thirteen has the the headshot. That's the one with the with the explosion of matter in the air. But he swears that that cloud of brain matter extended over several frames. And yet then, when they looked at it again, it didn't. It was only in this one frame. And so he said, I think that this has been altered to some extent. But then Kodak said, no, we looked at it. It has not been altered. It is all authentic. And then higher-ups at NPIC said... We actually had two separate teams working on it independently. So you may have seen one version and not another version, but you didn't, it, nothing was altered. I think the, the, the thought that you could take technology from 1963 and today you really can't determine that it was altered. I mean, it fooled the best experts from Kodak decades later, just is very, very improbable. Well, unless Kodak was in on it. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, of course. And what about Zapruder? He brought the film to Garrison's courtroom, or he was in court when Garrison played the Zapruder film. He never said it was altered. Well, in fact, I believe he was interviewed 
some years later, and he rather took umbrage with the notion that it had been altered because he said, no, it's that's that's the film I took. Yeah, I haven't seen that interview, but I wouldn't be surprised. I know a lot of people like to make a big deal about the, the stills from it that were published in Life magazine because the Bruder initially sold it to Life magazine. But one of the conditions was that, uh, look, this frame 313, you can't print it because it shows the president's head exploding. We can't have that in a magazine sitting around the house. You know, mom, the kids come up. Hey, daddy, what's that a picture of? Oh, uh, nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> But then during processing, Life magazine also managed to destroy four frames, frames 208 to 211, or so I guess that's three frames, and damage some of the frames around it as well. People then later see copies of the Spruder film with those frames intact, and they say, aha, you see. And I think what people don't realize is we talk about the Subruder film as if there's just one copy, but there are hundreds of copies. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, in fact, there was a couple of copies made right that day for Abraham Zapruder and the Secret Service uh, as a copy uh, before Life magazine made those errors. So there's nothing really missing from the Zapruder film. It's the whole film. We have the whole film. I remember many years ago, I'd heard that that initial shot uh, where you see his head snap, that originally when Kodak processed it or whoever it was processed the, the negatives the first time, just those frames were reversed, showing him going forward, not back. And that when this was pointed out that this didn't match up with eyewitness testimony, they said, oh, no, it was a mistake in the lab. Well, yes, because this was this was the, actually the, the printing of the 26 volumes of evidence of the Warren Commission. So in those books, they transposed, I think, frame 315 and 316. The FBI made a mistake, so they're transposed. And so some of the critics said, aha, you see, they're trying to hide the head snap. But of course, that doesn't really hide the head snap. Just taking two frames out of order doesn't really hide the ultimate position of Kennedy's head. So it was a bit of a, a crazy um, allegation to begin with. Well, especially since that's after frame 313. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, of course, if Oswald wasn't the lone gunman, there must have been other gunmen. Three of the famous ones, of course, are the three tramps. Uh, the three tramps were found uh, over in the train yard, kind of behind the grassy knoll, and people thought they looked strangely familiar when they saw pictures of them, or that they looked strangely clean if they were supposed to be tramps, hobos, homeless people. Uh, there were many, many, many different ideas about who they were, and I know two of the first early candidates were Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt. Because nobody had the arrest records, everybody was wondering who are these three people that are being marched away by the police. Uh, Jim Garrison made a big deal in his investigation of the Kennedy assassination. He actually showed their pictures on the Johnny Carson show and wondered who are these people. Back in, in, in the 1990s, the arrest records were found um, in the archives of the Dallas police. And in fact, they were just tramps. They were three people that were found in a boxcar uh, behind the Texas School Book Depository in the police decided to march them down to be questioned they were held for like three or four days and then released but again this is one of those other things where you you know every each one of those three tramps people have seen a whole variety of images who they think these people resemble i mean it, it got so far that they, people thought it was james earl ray 
Some of the early drawings of James Earl Ray looked like one of the tramps, you know, it was supposed to be Fred Chrisman and all, all the, it's just absolutely amazing how many names have been thrown out. And by the way, the House Select Committee on Assassinations is one of the great quotes of all time. They actually didn't think the tramps were all that uh, well-dressed. They said that you know, their sartorial appearance looked like it was a, a cannon shot through uh, the Salvation Army warehouse. That's surprisingly witty. Yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole variety of problems with their, with their so-called wardrobe. I mean, I've had a lot of fun with the three tramps on my blog because of Jim Garrison and the fact that he, he really never stopped hammering home the three tramps. He was so wrong. Well, yeah, like I said, E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis, who, for people that don't know, are two of the Watergate burglars, were candidates. Uh, some people said it was Charles Harrelson, who was a mob hitman, who used to apparently go around and kind of brag that he had been a gunman who helped take out, you know, that red commie John F. Kennedy. Uh, and uh, when he, he actually ended up in a, got really super high on coke and ended up in a six-hour standoff with police and then at the end of that when he finally surrendered he said hey go easy on me i have information for you i'm the guy that killed kennedy but even his mob buddies didn't believe him right <laughs> right like nobody believed it and then another possible candidate was um charles rogers who some people thought was a CIA operative who ended up dismembering his parents and sticking them into a refrigerator in what was known as the Icebox Murders. Yeah, it, I, again, I've had a lot of fun with them. The other, there's many, many other candidates. I mean, I don't know if you know how much you know about Fred Chrisman. Fred Chrisman was a, uh, lived in Tacoma, Washington. During the Kennedy assassination, he was a high school teacher, but he was also uh, involved in a huge UFO um, hoax back in the 1950s. Richard Sprague and a whole bunch of other conspiracy theorists convinced Garrison that Fred Chrisman was one of the tramps. What was, which, which UFO was that? Which one was that? It was the... Um, in Puget Sound, it was the... Um, oh, is this the dripping metal on the boat one? Yeah, the dripping metal that came from the sky that killed, uh, that killed the dog. Yeah, his dog. Killed his dog, that's right. Yeah, killed his dog. And But the sad part was that, that the Air Force sent out two investigators to look into that one, and they found it, there was nothing there. And on their plane ride back, their plane crashed, and they died. And so the, the FBI had to consider, do we actually bring charges against Fred Chrisman uh, and his associate for doing this hoax? And they they decided against it. Right. Better, better to just let that sleeping dog lie. But Fred Chrisman was an interesting character because he was involved with Thomas Beckham. The two of them were con men. And they, their big thing was they used to print phony degrees for themselves. And Garrison thought they were both involved and they were both actually subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. And if you want to read some of the funniest testimony, you could read Thomas Beckham's grand jury appearance. Uh, the man had a th grade three education, but he claimed to have all these medical degrees and other degrees from universities. And he actually told the House Select Committee on Assassinations that he had more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> Ah, uh, that had them laughing down at the pub, I'm sure. Yeah, well, they, in fact, they, they were laughing so hard at the HSCA, they realized, you know what, um, we should call this um, questioning of Thomas Beckham to a close, because the man's clearly uh, has nothing to offer. Still, you know, a little levity in, in an otherwise grim task. That's right. So just for the record, uh, it has come out that the three tramps were, in fact, three homeless people who kind of knew each other and who had spent the night 
previously at a homeless shelter. They had eaten there, and they had showered there and gotten maybe some new clothes as well. They're not particularly nice ones. Their names were Gus Abrams, Harold Doyle, and John Gedney. So those were the three tramps, everybody. That's right. Uh, some of the other uh, anomalous folks that have been uh, talked about in the uh, JFK assassination conspiracy world, one comes to mind is the babushka lady. Why is this such a big deal, apart from the woman who claimed that it was her? Why was this a, was it a big deal before this woman came forward? Not really, but it, the, what makes it interesting is that when you look at pictures of this babushka lady, it appears that she is holding a camera. Some people said a movie a movie camera, but it appears more like a still camera. So she probably took a picture or pictures at the time of the assassination. Now, perhaps we don't know whether they came out or, you know, whether it was clear or whatever, we just don't know. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where we always wonder, you know, are there any pictures of the assassination still squirreled away in somebody's drawer right or they just they just never developed the film or 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 they did and went oh jesus i don't want this in my house exactly so that that place this this uh understanding that maybe there is still hidden evidence somewhere that might actually prove a conspiracy and then it's just unfortunate that people that beverly oliver came forward and said well i'm the babushka lady and yes, I was taking, you know, a motion picture, blah, 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 confiscated by the FBI. Right. And and I heard that she claimed that she had a Yashica Super 8 camera, and that's what she had been using to film. And then someone pointed out to her, that's interesting because uh, the Yashica Super 8 camera didn't come out until 1969. Yeah. And then she said, oh, she had a prototype. Right. Six years early. <laughs> <laughs> her boyfriend worked for Kodak or something and she got a prototype. I mean, it's... Yeah. Now, that's a, to me, I think that's such an interesting thing. You get these people, like obviously you get people who are going to point, oh, it's E. Howard Hunt because he's involved in Watergate and so it makes sense he goes all the way back. You know, the X-Files has the smoking man uh, and all these different things. People would uh, attribute certain roles within the conspiracy theory that they're developing. But then you have these people who come forward, like these two clowns with the degrees, uh, this woman, Beverly Oliver. Why do people do this? What are, It's just like you get when a, a famous you know, murder or killing happens. The police will always say they get hundreds of people calling in to confess that clearly didn't do it. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, that always happens. Look at the, this case. Um, after when the Warren Commission was investigating, the FBI got all sorts of people calling in, well, I saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Wisconsin. I saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Florida. Uh, for me, there's even people who said they saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Montreal, Canada. So yeah, you're going to get sightings of, of Oswald all over the place. That happens. And most of them are, are nonsense. I saw him with Elvis. <laughs> yeah. And uh, being in Canada, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation has done several documentaries on JFK conspiracy. And I went through the files of the producer of all those shows. And he had a big file on was Lee Harvey Oswald in Montreal, you know, and he had he had done all these freedom of, uh, of information requests, both in Washington and in Ottawa to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he had all this, he had pictures, you could see the pictures of people who were at this supposed demonstration with Oswald. There was like eight people at this demonstration in support of Cuba. Oswald definitely wasn't there, but he was hoping to find evidence. 
And then, of course, another one of the famous folks is Umbrella Man. Why is he a big deal? What did, what did he do? Well, people noticed in the Zapruder film that there was somebody standing on the side of Elm Street with an umbrella up, even though it wasn't raining. And so what was what was all that all about? Who was this person? Why did he have an umbrella? Why was it out? And it got so crazy that people started believing that perhaps the umbrella was firing flechettes um, into Kennedy to sort of paralyze him so he could be killed by a gunman. I mean, people were, were getting really, really crazy. And then the House Select Committee on Assassinations actually found the Umbrella Man. His name was Lewis Witt. And the reason he had an umbrella was to symbolize Joseph Kennedy's appeasement to the Nazis, which was always symbolized by the umbrella. Right, because of Chamberlain, because that was Chamberlain's like, that was his trademark thing is he always had this black umbrella. That's right. Yeah. Apparently, black umbrellas had been used as a sort of satirical protest against Jack Kennedy several times before that uh, in reference to his father uh, basically uh, piling around with Chamberlain and, and letting the Nazis have their way in Central Europe. And so it's, there's a cottage industry on who actually was the umbrella man because people to this day still say, oh, no, the HSCA got it wrong. It's not Lewis Witt. It was somebody else. It just gets crazy. So let's talk about Oswald himself. Some of the key things people will talk about is that he was seen in the break room below the floor that the shots came from, uh, not out of breath, like just moments after the shots. People saw him who worked in the book depository. He was just kind of hanging out, having a soda, and he didn't seem worried. He didn't seem like he'd just run down a bunch of stairs. What are we to make of that? Are they just wrong? Well, just th think about it. Oswald was 24 years old. He was a ex-Marine in very, very good shape. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was 24 years old, going down four flights of stairs was hardly taxing. So then do you think that uh, he ran down there to be seen so that he kind of sort of had a kind of wishy-washy alibi? Well, I don't know what he was thinking. He ran down, obviously, to try to get out of the building. And obviously, he was seen as he was walking through uh, the lunchroom to get downstairs. I mean, I don't think Oswald ever re thought he was going to get out alive, actually. I thought the reason he left all that money for Marina Oswald in the morning was that he realized, okay, that's it. If this goes through, I'll probably be shot. It's the end of my life. Um, I'll leave all this money to Marina. So I don't know what he thought. But, um, you know, I think he was probably surprised as anybody else that he actually got out of the building alive. Okay, so playing devil's advocate a little bit. So if that's the case, what in God's name would then possess him to shoot a policeman? Well, that's a really good question. Why did why did he shoot Tippett? You know, we'll we'll never know. I mean, I think that the question is why did Tippett stop Oswald? Um, there was something that made Tippett suspicious. We don't know what it is. Did Oswald change directions when he saw Tippett's car? Was he disheveled, uh, looking slightly crazy? I don't know. There was something that caught Tippett's eye that made him stop Oswald. And I guess Oswald panicked and just shot him. And then he went into a cinema, which of course many people say is was a prearranged destination for him to meet his Russian slash CIA slash lizard that shapeshifts into human form uh, handler. Uh, but of course it makes more sense that he just ran in there because he would have a respite and a place to hide for a while. Well, it would have made more sense for him to buy a ticket and then go in rather than just sort of run inside the theater. 
I don't think he had a plan. I don't know. I think he was wandering aimlessly and, uh, you know, he was ducking into stores when the police were were shooting by on the street. And that's why uh, Brewer suspected him when he sort of ducked into the shoe store. Um, I don't think he really had a firm plan about what to do um, now that uh, he was out, he was on the loose. Well, and the last person before we get into more nitty gritty is, of course, Jack Ruby. Uh, it is always uh, officially claimed that Ruby didn't know Oswald. However, there are a lot of uh, suggestive uh, little tidbits here and there that maybe they had met or that they did know each other and that when Jack Ruby approaches Oswald, they seem to know each other because immediately Oswald says, I'm just a patsy. Why would he say that? Did he see the murder in Jack Ruby's eyes or did he recognize him and say, uh-oh, this is it. My number's, my number's getting uh, punched here. Well, I don't really think there's any hard evidence that they knew each other. Seems very likely they were in very different uh, circles. Um, there's no evidence that Oswald went to Ruby's nightclub. So I don't think they knew each other. Jack Ruby uh, went slightly insane that weekend, and he was really angered by the full-page ad of the Dallas Morning News on the morning of the 22nd that criticized Kennedy's uh, foreign policy and all his policies, and it was signed by Bernard Weissman. That really got Ruby's goat because Bernard Weissman is a Jewish name, and Jack Ruby, once the once Kennedy was killed, started wondering, were, 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 was Bernard Weissman, were Jews behind this? Um, and in fact, yeah, and he, in fact, he went to the post office box uh, or the post office where Bernard Weissman had a post office box. He wanted to find out who was this guy. They wouldn't tell him, of course. He did see, did see that that post office box had a lot of mail in it. And it also coincided with all the billboards around town calling for the impeachment of Earl Warren. And that also had a post office box associated with it. So Ruby thought maybe this is all connected into why Kennedy was killed. And uh, it was an impulsive act the next day. Ruby happened to be there, and uh, he took his shot and killed and killed Oswald. And then uh, Ruby really went nuts um, afterwards, um, believing there that because he was Jewish, people like the John Birch Society would claim he was in on the plot, and uh, he believed there was going to be a second Holocaust. Oh wow! So he he really lost the plot. Yeah, he was really anti-Semitism was a large part of his life. You know, you could read some of the reports of sitting with his psychiatrist in prison, sort of saying, oh, you know, in the next room, you know, they're they're killing Jewish people. He he really went, uh, and he was always warning his own brothers and sister about um, get ready to to leave, and you know, they're you're going to be killed, and they're coming for you, and he really went off the deep end. So, in a nutshell, if we were on a long elevator ride. <laughs> What would you say is the basic story of why Oswald did it? I think Oswald did it because of politics. Oswald was a very, very big fan of Fidel Castro, and he was quite possibly angered at the fact that the Kennedys were involved in all sorts of mischief in Cuba. Uh, When Oswald was living in New Orleans in September 1963, there was a fairly prominent article in the Times-Picayune about a speech that Castro had given where he said if attacks on Cuban leaders don't stop, then American leaders themselves will not be safe. And I bet you Oswald saw that article. Um, He knew about American attacks on Cuba. And I think that angered him greatly. And I think he wanted to strike a blow for the Cuban revolution in killing Kennedy. In your way of looking at things, Oswald was a, he was was a communist. He was a, a hardcore communist. 
he was a communist. He was not a Leninist. He was obviously disillusioned with life in the Soviet Union, but his, he would say he was a Marxist. And if you look at his writings, he, he wanted a pure communist society. And he was hoping to get to Cuba because he really wanted to help Fidel Castro achieve this pure communist society. What do you think about the idea of, because he moved to the Soviet Union, there are, of course, some conspiracy folks who say that while he was there, he met Gary Powers uh, when the U-2 plane went down. Yeah, I don't think there's any evidence to support that. I don't think he met Gary Powers. But Oswald, uh, you know, Oswald found life in the Soviet Union to be really, really dreary. It wasn't much fun. There wasn't much to do. Um, he was bored. And as much as he hated the United States, he decided he wanted to go back to the States. Um, so he, he was disillusioned with the Soviet Union for sure. But his wife, wasn't his wife the daughter of uh, a high-ranking military officer? Yeah, he had some intelligence connections. And uh, yeah, there's lots of, always lots of rumors about Marina Oswald and whether she was some sort of spy or something, but I never, never really understood all of that. Right, because I think that again, the the armchair quarterback uh, says there's no way that they would let her defect. Yes, you know, again, it's always we we understand how things ought to work when in fact things are always a little more nuanced, a little more complex. I think the Soviets were happy to see Oswald go, get out. You know, we were tired of watching you because they were watching him twenty four seven in Minsk. Go, leave. We don't really need another radio worker in our plant. So go. The sad part about Oliver Stone is that he based his movie on Jim Garrison. And Jim Garrison, unfortunately, prosecuted Clay Shaw, an innocent gay man, for conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Garrison never came up with any evidence against Clay Shaw, so he had to manufacture evidence in the recovered memories of Perry Russo. It's a very sad story, um, and it's even sadder that, that Oliver Stone fell for it as well. Jim Garrison was looking for the elusive Clay Bertrand. This was the man who supposedly called Dean Andrews right after the assassination to ask him to defend Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, so who was Clay Bertrand? Well, Clay Bertrand was gay. Clay Bertrand spoke Spanish. And Garrison had this belief that gay people, when using a pseudonym, keep the same first name. And so who has the name Clay? Who is gay and who speaks Spanish? It dawned on the Clay Shaw. It's Clay Shaw. And so that was his theory. And there was never any evidence. Um, so we had to make it up. So the book on the trail of delusion, is it really about Jim Garrison and his uh, investigative um, efforts and where he went wrong? Or is it about more than that? Well, it's, it's, it's about his investigation, but it's not just about Clay Shaw. So he actually went after other people. He charged Edgar Eugene Bradley with conspiracy to kill Kennedy as well. Uh, Bradley was a promoter of Christian radio based in California. And even amongst Garrison's staff, they wondered, well, how are these two conspiracies linked? Clay Shaw conspired, Bradley conspired. Are they two separate conspiracies? And of course, years later, Garrison apologized to Edgar Eugene Bradley, said, oh, I made a mistake. Well, it's quite a mistake to charge somebody with uh, conspiring to kill Kennedy. JFK conspiracy theories, you see them as not really harmless fun, like, okay, let, you know, let the relatives, you know, hash it out over Christmas or Thanksgiving. Uh, it's, it's actually something much worse than that, or that there's something sort of something debilitating in their uh, persistence to us as a, as a society and as a culture. Yeah, and I, the problem is that people use the JFK assassination to further other political theories. So if you, again, as I said, if you don't like American foreign policy, you could blame it on the JFK assassination. If you don't like the CIA, 
if you don't like the military, if you don't like the Russians, if you don't like the Cubans, if you want to blame it on Israel, you could use the JFK assassination as your tool, your methodology to further um, that hatred that you have. So it's a tool. The, the, the Kennedy assassination is a, is a tool that can be used. And, and that's where it gets very, very dangerous uh, because so many people can use it and are using it. There are researchers right now who are, uh, have written books in support of Jim Garrison and who claim that America, Kennedy was going to change American foreign policy completely and thus had to be eliminated. And thus all the bad foreign policy decisions that we have today, whether it's the war um, in Iraq, the national security state, whatever you want to call it, is all because of the JFK assassination. And if he hadn't been assassinated, we would have been living in this, this incredible nirvana, it would have been heaven. You know, it, it just did this, this mythology. And, and it's, it's again, there are people who, who just can't let go um, and believe that everything today, you can explain Donald Trump through the Kennedy assassination. It opens up all these other possibilities. What else are they lying about? What else are they do? How ruthless are they? Uh, what was it that he was going to do? I mean, you know, UFO people say he was about to come clean that Dwight Eisenhower had signed a treaty with aliens. Uh, he was about to tell everybody, and that's why he was killed. Uh, it really does just kind of become this catch-all thing, and yet... It, it also undermines democracy because it makes you believe that there is this, this sort of secret group of people who are making decisions you get the Fletcher Prouty being one of these people who came up with the secret team, you know, high level CIA military industrial types who are pulling all the strings. We don't really have a democracy in the States. Uh, we're powerless because of uh, the JFK assassination, this, this, this secret group of people. This is quite dangerous because it, it undermines belief in democracy. Do you think that some of these things are still I mean, I know it sounds kind of like a conspiracy theory, but I think I think it's pretty well known at this point that there are bad actors, not just individuals uh, seeking fame and what minuscule amount of money they can make off the conspiracy sphere talk circuit, but there are possibly as high as national level governmental uh, entities that are using and purposely spreading misinformation and disinformation for that purpose to weaken democracy because they think it's garbage and they don't play by those rules and so they'd like to change the game that's a very interesting question look there there's um an awful lot of people all over the place who are trying to weaken democracy um we know who they are and conspiracy theorists are dangerous you saw it in in the shape of donald trump being a conspiracy theorist in the uh, in power um who did a lot of damage to democracy. This is why it's so dangerous to let these people in power. I agree. I think uh, right thinking, clear thinking, uh, stick just the facts, ma'am, dragnet the whole thing. But I don't see that happening. I see it happening less and less and less. And I'm wondering if the 21st century is going to be known as this time period where consensus was no longer achievable on anything. Look, I, I tear my hair out every day because in a, in a certain way, I am surrounded by crazy people on the left who are woke and say the craziest things. And then I've got Trumpists on the right who are crazy as well. And I'm trying to find some middle ground to, to speak to regular Canadians or regular Americans who realize there's something wrong with these two polarities. That both of these groups, there's something seriously wrong. Um, what do we do? And this is going to be a problem that everybody's going to have to come to grips with some of the sooner or later. 
Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's why that uh, there was a TV miniseries about uh, Ailes, who started Fox News, who uh, I think you can you can point a lot of the finger at what's going on today uh, at Fox News and the beginnings of Fox News and the way that they uh, handle information and the way that they treat facts. You know, they're kind of some of the pioneers of this post-truth idea. But the title of it is The Loudest Voice, meaning The Loudest Voice comes from a book called The Loudest Voice in the Room. And it seems like that's maybe where we seem to be heading, or at least that's the time we're in right now, is the loudest voice gets the most attention and so therefore gets the most thought in people's brains and takes up the most time and it's in your social media feed and it's here and it's there. So it's in many ways, if that's constantly happening and bombarding you, I could almost see how some people would go back to something like the Kennedy assassination as kind of like a vacation from the real world. Like, huh, at least this I can figure out. <laughs> well, for me, my vacation is is spending my days doing my blog about uh, uh, conspiracy theorists and Jim Garrison it takes my mind off some of the craziness. Well, I think all of these uh, issues are still being worked out in society at large. Uh, and then one thing is for sure is that conspiracy theories don't help. A lot of people have talked about how they have lost friends and even family members to these almost cult-like ways of thinking and processing information and even the way that they deal with sourcing information, what information they believe, what information they don't believe. Uh, what's your advice to someone who is dealing with this, who's trying to say, look, man, I don't know for sure what happened with Kennedy, but I'm pretty sure Oswald was the only guy and here's my proof. And in this atmosphere of give no quarter, Never back down because to back down from your viewpoint is to show weakness. Uh, what what can people do? I face insults every day on Facebook. You wouldn't believe the insults I get every day. Just as we speak, there's been like two or three insults posted um, about me. What I try to do is I'm not, not engage with the insults. And I try to realize that the people who are insulting me, I'll never find words to change their mind. So if I act reasonably on these Facebook pages, the people in the middle, the people who are just watching, not sure what to think about some of this stuff, if they see me acting reasonably, that will help my case. And so I'd say this to everybody, be reasonable, be considerate, and be kind. And that's the only way you should lead your life. It's the only way forward. Well, not terrible advice, truth be told. Focus on, yeah, focus on that great big middle the great center where most people are and most people are sane and, and want nothing more than a good conversation and a good discussion. That's where we should center all of our attention. Lone gunman seems to be a lot of evidence for it. Uh, those that disagree, feel free to disagree with my guest, Mr. Fred Litwin, but, um, don't be jerks about it when you do, huh? Uh, again, Mr. Litwin's book is On the Trail of Delusion. It is available now on Amazon. It's available on Amazon and iTunes and a whole variety of digital platforms. Uh, and he's also got a previous book, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. All right, so uh, again, I'd like to thank Mr. Litwin for talking to me today. Don't forget to check the episode notes for this uh, podcast episode for links to his book, uh, some of the things we talked about in here and uh, other things as well. And again, you can always check out the video version on our YouTube channel, which will have some pictures, including that of that bullet. Uh, thank you again, Mr. Litwin. 
Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, thank everybody for listening. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.